From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. We continue this week to take a closer look at what are expected to be some of the most highly contested races in North Texas on Election Day. Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers talk to the candidates running for Texas's 24th Congressional District. Republican Kenny Marchant, who has held the seat for 16 years, is retiring. Later, in a discussion you'll hear only on the podcast, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke checks in to talk about his efforts to help turn Texas blue and what it's like to debate on the national stage. But we start with the 24th Congressional District. It covers northeastern parts of Tarrant County and northwestern sections of Dallas County. Former Irving Mayor Beth Van Dyne is the Republican running to hold the seat for the party, while former school board member Candace Valenzuela is the Democratic nominee. Marchant won re-election by just three points two years ago, that margin drastically different from 2016 when he won by 17 points. By virtue of a coin toss, we'll hear from Valenzuela first. The former Carrollton Farmers Branch ISD school board member is the Democratic nominee in the district. She defeated Air Force veteran Kim Olson in the primary runoff election in July, and in that primary, she earned big-name endorsements from Senator Elizabeth Warren and the late Representative John Lewis. Julian Gromer talked to Valenzuela about the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic, the fight over the vacant Supreme Court seat, and policing at a time of social unrest. Candace Valenzuela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Julian Gromer. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. In a district that has been traditionally red, why should voters choose you over former Irving Mayor Beth Van Dyne? I am running for Congress because the opportunities that helped me go from being homeless as a kid, living in a kiddie pool outside of an El Paso gas station, to being the first in my family to go to college, to being the first woman of color on my Carrollton Farmers Branch School Board, have been under attack by this administration and they should be available to everyone. I am running to take care of, of folks who have urgencies that are not being met by members of Congress who've never experienced what it's like to struggle to put food on the table or keep a roof over their heads or to see their children succeed. And particularly when we're talking about this pandemic, there's so much politicking going on in Washington, D.C. that folks aren't concerned about the fact that 33,000 people who work in our airline industry in this district are out of a job right now. So many families are going hungry. So many families are having to make the choice between sending their kids to a school environment where they could catch a deadly virus or keeping them at home and struggling to supplement their education while struggling to supplement their food. My opponent cheered on the early opening of this state and of this country cheered on this administration as they neglected to care for this pandemic. And she's cozying up to special interests, taking millions of dollars in corporate PAC money. I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. I'm working for the people of this district. Candace, you just talked about the COVID response. What do you think about that? Should Congress have done more? Should the government have done more to get us in a good spot coming out of this pandemic or dealing with this pandemic? I think initially we were off to a very good start when we were emphasizing investing in our families, emphasizing investing in our small businesses. But as this pandemic has dragged on, we have this gridlock that isn't prioritizing the urgencies again that families are facing. People are going hungry. People are not able to stay in their homes. People are not able to afford their health care. And particularly when you have a pandemic, people are going to have needs there. Congress needs to act now. Uh, to get the care that we need. And I think that they have been doing that, but with the partisan gridlock in our Senate, 
we're not going to get the care that, that working families need. So I'm going to be working hard to make sure that we don't just get a robust Congress, but at every level of government, we have people that are fighting for working families. Speaking of the Senate, how do you expect the fight over the Supreme Court vacancy to impact how uh, Democrats like you are running for office? Well, I can tell you, a Democrat like me isn't going to change her tack in running for office. What I'm talking about is what families are dealing with. Uh, when families are struggling at home, again, with their kids uh, trying to get their education done, when families are struggling, uh, when they are going to work and they don't have sufficient protective gear in order to protect themselves from the virus, it really is laughable that we're having this back and forth about justices. Now, I know that it's critical because the justices that Republicans are trying to push through want to strip away health care uh, from folks with pre-existing conditions, want to stop, strip away access to health care for women's reproductive rights. The fact that the Senate is not focused on that, instead is trying to ram through someone because they want to score political points in, in this game to them is in, indicative of what's wrong with Washington. So I'm railing against that, and that's not going to change. I mean, you talked a little bit about health care there. You do favor a single-payer health care system. Is that fair to people who like the insurance that they have right now? The system of care I'm, I'm advocating for is a robust public option. So folks can choose not to have it, but it covers 100% of costs for people making under $50,000 a year and 90% of costs for folks that make more than $50,000 a year. In an era in which so many people have lost their jobs and they're going to find work again, it's not great to have health care tied to work. Our health care for our children, for our elderly, for our families needs to be there in the most advanced country in the world as so we are seeking to transition to a better economy. After the, uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there have been calls to defund the police and other reforms to policing. Your opponent has accused you of being soft on crimes. What reforms would you support in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing? I don't support defunding the police. But what I do support is investing in programs that invest in the, the mental health care of our, our communities. I support investing in living wages. I support investing in health care, in clean water, in equity in schools. All of these things come together to make our community safer. But I also support police reform. I support uh, making our forces accountable to external entities so that they don't have to talk to their, their, the district attorney that they work with every single day about dealing with somebody on the force. As somebody who is a family member of both police officers and of the military, I know how critical accountability is for the people of our communities but also protecting those good cops or, or those good soldiers. When we don't have that accountability, it's very difficult for somebody who sees something wrong to say something. And that's why I'll always be pushing for fairness, equity, and reform for the folks in this country. In 10 seconds, your first ad was about education. Congress doesn't have a lot to do with education. Local school districts do. Do you support expanding the role of Congress in education matters? We don't discuss enough the fact that Congress does play quite the role in, in education as it stands. When we talk about Title IX, which is a, a, has a lot to do with the civil rights of our students, 
when we talk about uh, free and reduced lunch, when we talk about special needs funding, when we talk about uh, bilingual education, all of those things have to do with federal funding. And one of the things that we need to start prioritizing because it's an issue of national economic security is early childhood education. We should be expanding the role of funding that because when we, we invest in our littlest Texans, we get an incredible return on investment back. And it doesn't matter what income they are. And that return on investment also includes getting families back to work. Okay. And getting people in a situation to succeed. Candace Valenzuela, Congressional District 24 candidate. Thanks for joining us. The GOP nominee to replace Marchant is former Irving Mayor Beth Van Dyne. She served as mayor from 2011 to 2017 and was then appointed to work in the Trump administration as a regional director in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Here's Van Dyne with Julian Gromer on the election, Governor Greg Abbott's mask mandate, and health care. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to see you. This district has been traditionally red, but it's a changing district. So what makes you the best candidate? Well, I'll tell you, I think our focus needs to be on opening the economy back up safely. And I've had a little experience with that. When I was elected to be mayor in 2011, we were coming out of recession. And I focused on bringing jobs into the community and working with our businesses to make sure that we had opportunities for our folks to live there, to be able to get jobs, to be able to provide for their families. We added 40,000 new jobs in that time. $3 billion of economic development. We saw not only did we retain businesses that were there, but we brought many new ones in. And I think there's a stark difference between myself and my opponent, where I am trying to work with businesses to bring those kind of opportunities and choices to, to our public. We've got a, an opponent who quite honestly is anti-business and is looking at closing, closing businesses down. Some of her policies would actually gut 2 million jobs out of Texas. And at the same time, that would strip $78 million out of our public schools. I think you're looking at a difference between a candidate who has been out and about in the public, who has been working with neighbor to neighbor, business to business, trying to figure out what people's priorities are, how they want to get back to business, showing best practices, having, having had those conversations, um, versus a candidate who was really, you know, my opponent, who was looking at federal government control over basically every aspect of our life. Mayor, the story of 2020 has been the coronavirus pandemic. You are a former Trump administration appointee. You worked with the housing and, and urban development. What do you think about the administration's handling of the COVID-19 crisis? You know, I think this, this is going to be one of those pandemics that's going to have case studies for years around. I think we, we saw an administration who tried to take immediate action, who has allowed states in local municipalities who know their citizens best to be able to try to govern in such a way that makes sense in their communities. You know, New York is definitely not Texas and District 24 is, is not DC. So I think allowing those types of individual rights has been really important. I think moving forward, what we need to look at is opening businesses back up safely. We need to get people back to employees and we need to make sure that our kids are back in school. The you know, long-term ramifications of this is, you know, we have lost lives to COVID-19, and, and that has been tragic. But I think moving forward, we're also looking at ways, uh, some of the other damages that have happened. And keeping kids out of school, you're looking at higher depression rates. Um, you're looking at more suicides, abuse of, of alcohol and drugs, spousal abuse. 
you know, we need to get people back to work and we need to really think about what some of those long-term implications are and prevent them if at all possible. You mentioned personal rights just now. Do you support, looking mm -hmm. here locally, do you support Texas Governor Greg Abbott's mask mandate? You know, I, I look at what we need to do moving forward. I think a lot of it is personal responsibility and common sense. Um, you know, we need to socially distance. We need to wash our hands. If we are not feeling well, stay home, um, for goodness sake. And, and people who have, have, have um, are, are more at risk, we need to make sure that we're protecting them. But I think giving people as much information as they can and allowing them to make their own risk assessments which is what we do all the way across the board in pretty much every other um, aspect of our lives, I think that's important. I think but, that's really important moving forward. But it's really, it's a common sense attitude that we need to take, to take away from this. So do you support this? Do you think that people should have to wear masks? The numbers appear to be going down. Do you support Governor Abbott there? You know, I, I support a lot of things that the governor has done. You know, I think he has been in a very tested time. As far as masks, you know, if Target or a grocery store wants to have that mask mandate, I think it's our decision as individual citizens to decide whether or not we want to go into those establishments. But I think that should be something that, that we're looking at knowing what the risks are. But we all need to have common sense, wear masks, socially distance, wash your hands. And if you don't feel well, stay at home. And we need to do what we can to protect those folks with pre-existing conditions. Quickly, let's talk about the unrest related to calls for social justice reform and, mm -hmm. and anti-police brutality protests that have been going on across the country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. What yeah. reforms, if any, do you support to curb police brutality? You know, and this is very, this is very personal to me, uh, having worked at the local level, both as a city councilman for six years and as mayor for six years, having worked so closely with our police departments and also having gotten an endorsement from police departments across the, the district as well as associations from across the state. Our police officers do a great job. And one of the things that I always championed and advocated was community policing and those types of programs. They got police more out into the community. So not only were they familiar and building trust within the community, but those community members knew who our police officers were. We had several programs that were very successful and as a result, our community members actually had a great deal of respect and it was mutual respect. Those are the types of best practices that I've seen put into effect, I have championed, I have advocated that we should use in cities across the country. Where do you stand on the lawsuit brought by Attorney General Ken Paxton that seeks to bring down the Affordable Care Act? The Supreme Court is expected to hear that matter immediately following the election. Where do you stand on that and health care in general? You know, and healthcare again, this is really personal to me. And I know, Grandma, you've heard this. My daughter, when she was born, had nine surgeries. And some of her most important surgeries were denied by our healthcare, our healthcare insurance. And I, as a mother of a four month old, I had to go to bat for my daughter. And so I really am a, a strong proponent in making sure that we have uh, plans that will cover pre existing conditions, having already had to do that. No mother. No parent should have to do that for a family member. But at the same time, I'm also positive that we need to have further opportunities and choices, which means expanding those health care choices, increasing our, our health savings accounts and how we choose to be able to spend our money, being able to personalize health insurance to fit our family's needs and, and, and cost. 
What we've seen through that the Affordable Health Care Act is increases in costs, decreases in access, and quite honestly, decreases in quality. I think people given the choice would choose to have um, their own plans and, and be able to personalize them as opposed to a one-size-fits-all uh, government plan. And what I see from my opponent is someone who would strip 600,000 people from their private insurance plans under under Obamacare. And I don't think that's what 600,000 people alone just in District 24 want. I think they want to have more options and be able to personalize. Beth Van Dyne, Congressional District 24 candidate, thanks so much for joining us this Thank morning. You so much. Remember the deadline to register to vote in Texas is October 5th and early voting starts eight days later. Beto O'Rourke's name ID grew nationally in 2018 when he challenged Republican Ted Cruz in the U.S. Senate race. After narrowly losing in the midterms, the former congressman from El Paso launched a presidential bid but dropped out of the race in November. Since then, he's focused his attention on helping Democrats make progress in Texas with a group called Powered by People. The state's electoral votes haven't gone to the Democratic presidential candidate since Jimmy Carter in 1976. But President Donald Trump's lead over Democratic nominee Joe Biden is just two points in the latest Dallas Morning News UT Tyler poll, in a state Trump won by nine points four years ago. O'Rourke talks to Julian Gromer about what Biden was like behind the scenes at the Democratic primary debates and how he thinks the former vice president will fare against Trump on Tuesday night. Former El Paso Congressman Beto O'Rourke, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for, for allowing me to join you. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let's start with this. I mean, you've got the first presidential debate coming up this week. I mean, you've been on that debate stage. What does each candidate need to do, really? So the most important thing to do, the easiest thing for me to say, the hardest advice to actually follow is to find a way to be yourself and to come through as someone who is comfortable in their own skin, who knows who they are, who knows what they want to do for the American people. And actually, I think this is a place where Joe Biden naturally excels. You know, you won't remember him from the Democratic Party, somebody who throws off these zingers uh, or these well-rehearsed attack lines or unloads a bunch of opposition research. That's just not the guy that Joe Biden is, and he doesn't try to be that person. Instead, he comes off as an extraordinarily warm, compassionate, empathetic person who is, who is doing his level best. And I think really these contests, including these debates, really, if they work, reveal the character of the candidates. And I think you're going to see Trump come across as, as very malicious, sniping, underhanded, and devious, mendacious. You know, he's not someone who traffics in the truth. And you'll have the polar opposite in Joe Biden on that stage, if he can, if he can be himself as he was in those presidential primary debates, I think he's going to do just fine next week. Of course, Beto, you you just love to debate so much, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and what a different Gromer. In all seriousness, what a different debate, right? So the right. first presidential debate I'm on the stage with 10 or 11 other candidates and the next night is 10 or 11 more candidates. I think we had 24 people maybe debating in that first round. This is one-on-one. -on -one. This is really a completely different deal altogether. I think this kind of debate, frankly, I would enjoy a little bit more when you are able to give more than a 30-second 
response and really extend you know your idea and your vision for this country which you really couldn't do when you were competing against nine or ten people on the stage and i think that actually is to biden's advantage because he's not somebody who's going to scrap against these other folks to, to fight for that time he's going to be himself so let me ask you this because take us inside like because you mentioned how trump will will try to attack biden what do you feel like instantaneously what did you feel when say julian castro jumped you i believe that was the first was that the first democratic presidential debate so it was the first debate you're rolling you know along <laughs> and then yeah. all of a sudden boom what's your reaction and then how do you go about responding to it yeah you know what's what's really interesting about that debate and that particular exchange I'm very telling about the format and some of the challenges with having so many people on the stage i literally did not hear everything that julian said which really made it very difficult to respond i knew he was talking about immigration i knew he was talking about the immigration statute that criminalizes illegal entry into the united states and i also knew because of my preparation beforehand that julian and i are, are essentially on the same page we don't want to criminalize people who are coming across this border seeking a better life for themselves and their families these kids these families these folks fleeing the deadliest places on planet earth but i didn't hear the specific line of attack that he used and kind of a, a zinger that he had that i hadn't done my homework uh, or whatever he said and so watching that tape afterwards was really painful and was one where i was like man i i've, I've got to be so much more focused and so much better able to anticipate and then hear these attacks and respond as quickly as i can you know that's that's in the scrum of of 10 people and three moderators and a ton of voices talking over each other in this debate i, I think you're going to have a really different dynamic in that you will just have those those two contenders on the stage but to your point gromer you can count on trump punching below the belt repeatedly and doing things beyond just the rhetoric that he employs. We all remember him stalking Hillary Clinton from behind on the debate stage, kind of a really creepy power move on Donald Trump's part. What will he do to try to diminish Joe Biden in this debate? I, I don't know, but I feel like I can count on Joe Biden being ready for that. And you know, he's somebody who, in my opinion, exudes strength and confidence is gonna be more than a match for that. But we don't know what's coming, and we'll, we'll have to see when we watch this next week. Representative, what's it like after these debates? Like, I, I interviewed um, Senator Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, yesterday, and he actually spoke about how he got to know you on like the debate circuit and on the campaign trail. I mean, it seems like if everybody goes and dukes out on stage, is it kind of like backstage? You just move on? Yeah, it's it's like the, um, I can't remember what the company was, if it was Looney Tunes or another one, but you, you remember the, the coyote at, and um, uh, I forget the other character at the end of the day, like all, all day they spend uh, chasing each other and right. going after each other and at each other's throats. And then they punch out at the end of the day and they're friends and they go grab a beer together. Um, I didn't really ever grab a beer with any of the other contenders for the nomination, but you, you are kind and at, at a minimum polite and, and in some cases actually very warm with the people against whom you're contesting. And actually the best example of that was Joe Biden. I mean, 
backstage, a lot of like painful forced smiles because everyone's got their game face on. They're trying to think through the attack that they're going to launch once they get on that stage, the line that they've rehearsed, the zinger that they're going to unveil. Biden doesn't have any of that stuff going on, right? He, he's not like, I'm going to just punch the crap out of Beto when I get on that stage. He's like, I'm going to tell the folks why I'm running. I'm going to answer the questions as they come. I'm going to be me. And so it frees him up to actually be a genuine human being and say, hey, Beto, how's Ulysses doing? Uh, haven't heard you mention him in a while. Is What, what grade is he? Seventh grade, eighth grade? Like the, the stuff that he would remember and the things that he'd ask me about that, that get down to the core of who you are and his interest in who you are, that stays with me, right? Not, and not everyone was like that backstage. You know, they're, they're sharpening their knives before they, they go out in front of the lights. Not Joe Biden. And you might think that puts him at a deficit against someone who so actively brandishes the knives in Donald Trump. But watch this empathy, kindness, and compassion become his greatest strength on that debate stage. And, you know, he's not asked for my advice. I haven't given it. If he were to, I'd say, whenever you can connect with us, and if Donald Trump attacks you, don't make it about you, make it about the attacks that we've endured under Donald Trump, his, his cruelty and incompetence in the face of this pandemic or the recession or the killings here in El Paso a year and a month ago when 23 people were slaughtered by somebody inspired by Donald Trump. Call to, to mind those who've endured and struggled through this administration and be their champion. He does that naturally, so he doesn't need to hear that from me. So I, again, think that we will be very pleasantly surprised by his performances this coming week, if he can stay true to himself. So I think it was Bugs Bunny, right? Was it Bugs Bunny? I was like, it was, it, was it a coyote was chasing? I, 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 I this mean, is about the time of the I, podcast. I, I, go I think, off the rails. I think it was Bugs Bunny. But hey, Beto, look. I know you've been instrumental with the group Powered by People in trying to help Democrats take control of the Texas House. But where is the, the investment in Texas by the Joe Biden campaign? And are you afraid some of the down-ballot candidates will run out of money? Yeah, there is no, there's not enough of a meaningful investment from the Biden campaign in, in Texas. They have an amazing team. Uh, I think headquartered out, out of North Texas with Rebecca Acuna, who's an extraordinary state director, one of the best state directors the Biden team has across the 50 states. But they haven't given her the resources she needs, uh, in my opinion, to reach the voters who will decide the outcome of this election. And what Gromer is so unbelievable to me is every poll that we look at shows either Biden or Trump up by a point, but both of them within the margin of error what we know from 2018 is that the polls undervalued Democratic voter performance. So they had me down between seven and nine points, literally on the eve of the November 2018 election against Ted Cruz. We lost by two and a half points, outperforming the polls by five to six points. And that is not an anomaly. That is pretty consistent in how undervalued Democratic voters are, in part because this is the most voter-suppressed, voter-intimidated state in the union. There's a reason we were 50th in voter turnout prior to 2018. This state, by statute, has made it very hard, or harder than it should be, for Black voters, for Latino voters, for voters in communities of color to cast their ballot. And pollsters don't know how to count that. And so my message to the Biden team is, whatever you think the margin is, you are outperforming it right now. And you could 
capitalize on this and close the deal and you don't have to spend a hundred million dollars that that's just the amount that mike bloomberg has put in florida on behalf of biden on top of the tens hundreds of millions that the biden team is putting into florida for a fraction of that you can build on the great work that these state house candidates uh lisa simmons uh, elizabeth beck uh, joanna katnack all over north texas and southeast texas and central texas they are themselves running historically courageous, well-funded, to your question, I don't think they're going to run out of, run out of funds, well-funded campaigns that are bringing in net new voters, and they will send those voters up the ballot to Biden. So my message to Biden is, look, so many of these Texas candidates and volunteer organizations and the Texas Democratic Party, they're doing the work for you. Just help them, complement it, supplement it, kick a little bit in to show that you're serious. And if you do that, the result will be catalytic. It, it will supercharge voters in Texas. It will give those wondering whether you really care about us the confirmation that you do. And on this election, where Donald Trump has said he may not accept the results, where Donald Trump won't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, well, Donald, where Donald Trump has admitted to slowing down the U.S. mails to try to thwart mail-in ballots in states to depend on them, we need Texas to come in. We don't, we don't want it to come in. It wouldn't be nice if it came in. We need it to come in. Those 38 electoral college votes really on election night decide the deal. Otherwise, get ready for a protracted battle that will wind its way through the courts, potentially to a, a court with a new conservative Trump-appointed justice who will decide the outcome much the way they did in Bush v. Gore in 2000. That's how important Texas is. And I, I just I just hope the Biden folks will listen to us and do something before it's too late. Hey, before we let you go, so quick question, because all three of us are big music lovers on this call. What's on in your car right now? So I, it's funny that you ask. Uh, I just got this CD from one of our, our great Texas songwriter heroes, Joe Ely, who is records solo, also records in this band called the Flatlanders from the, the Panhandle region. He's had such a profound influence on rock and roll, on country music, on my favorite band, The Clash, who recorded I Fought the Law, I think in part influenced by Joe Ely. He recorded this record called Love in the Midst of Mayhem in the midst of this quarantine here in Texas and released it. And it's just been on constant repeat because I feel like he captured the essence of what it's like for all of us who are trying to live something as close to normal in the most abnormal time of our lives. That's what I'm listening to. How, how about you? My car right now is on, no surprise, E Street Radio. It's usually on E Street Radio. But you know, uh, Springsteen's got that new album coming out. That's right. He's another one who's recording in the midst of this. Yeah, which is going to be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Grom, what do you got? I've been listening to uh, a cool CD called Great Moments with B.B. King, and it captures a lot of his live performances in the 50s and 60s, uh, including Live at the Regal in Chicago which was one of his landmark live albums. So it's pretty cool to listen to. I got to check That's that out. That's how O'Rourke, you are welcome on this podcast anytime. Thanks so much for being with us. And I know Thank you, you. love for debating. Me. I know you love debating, Beto. Oh, let, it, let it go. <laughs> Julie, will you moderate a, a Gromer Jeffers, Beto O'Rourke debate on, on the next podcast? There because I feel like I'm being challenged yes, by Gromer. Yes, for sure, 100%. I, I, I need, in fact, I need to we prove can myself. just do it right now. <laughs> All right, guys. Maybe we'll get that debate sometime after the general election. 
You can catch that first presidential debate Tuesday at 8 on NBC5. As we continue to look at races in tight districts around North Texas, remember you can always go back and find a show you missed or hear from candidates again if you want. Last week, Julian Gromer looked at Texas's 32nd district, where Democratic incumbent Colin Allred is running against Republican Genevieve Collins. To hear conversations with those candidates, check out last week's episode wherever you get your podcasts or at NBCDFW.com. Thanks to candidates Beth Van Dyne and Candace Valenzuela and former Congressman Beto O'Rourke for stopping by this week. Stay up to date with everything related to Texas politics by visiting NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. And we'll talk to you next week.